Thank you to the quartet for leading us in worship this morning. That was wonderful. Thank you. In the children's uh, rehearsal for Christmas Eve yesterday, uh, the children were singing the song we just sang here this morning, and I couldn't help but hear some of their versions of it, and I'm pretty sure some of them were singing um, In Chelsea's Deo. And, and, and I was thinking, well, you know, Auntie Chelsea's around here somewhere, so that would, that would make sense. And I was like, well, what does that even mean, in, in excelsis Deo? And it actually just means what the angels sang, glory to God in the highest. That's what in excelsis Deo means. So now when you sing it, it's not Chelsea's Deo, it's glory to God in the highest. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word, the greatest story ever told. May it come fresh and alive to us once more. Speak through these words, through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, I do not know how to explain it. I cannot tell how it is, but I believe that angels have a great deal to do with the business of this world. Now, I can't help but ex express agreement with Spurgeon's assessment. The Bible verifies this view throughout its pages. From cover to cover, we find angels being active participants in the events of history, including the birth of the Messiah. Now, you may not have directly taken note of it this morning, but almost every single song that we sang this morning had some reference to the angels in it. Of course, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Well, why is there an angel named Herald? You may have wondered before. But... Uh, <laughs> Heralds are messengers. So, and throughout, we sang songs that included angels. They're just part and parcel to the story of God's work of salvation, bringing salvation to the earth. However, these celestial angelic beings represent not only the forces of God, not only the forces of good, but also the fallen angelic forces of Satan, who seeks to oppose God and his salvation at every turn. So how did this angelic warfare in this spiritual realm begin? Where did this all start? Well, we're only given three primary glimpses into what is the most influential and catastrophic event in the history of the universe. And that is the fall of the powerful angel, once known as Lucifer, today known as the devil or Satan. So I want you to turn with me first to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 28, verses 14 and 15. Now here in Ezekiel, we're given one of these glimpses into the fall of Lucifer. And just as context and for reference for you, in verse 12, you may notice that this prophecy is addressed to someone known as the king of Tyre. It is actually a layered prophecy where the first human layer does refer to the actual historical king of Tyre, but there is a second spiritual layer, which refers to Lucifer. And we see that that is the only person or, or entity who could fully fit the descriptions given within this prophecy, as you will soon see. So let's look at Ezekiel 28, verses 14 and 15. It says, You were anointed as a guardian cherub, you were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created 
until wickedness was found in you. And so from this account, we learn first that Lucifer was the type of angel known as a guardian cherubim. Now, ironically, and Rocky touched on this in our Sunday school lesson this morning, the main job of a guardian cherub was to guard the holiness of God. So this was the primary job description of this angel, is to guard the holiness of God, and yet we see, ironically, that it's the guardian of God's holiness that himself becomes unholy when wickedness was found in him. And so, what was that wickedness? What was it that corrupted Lucifer? Well, turn with me next to Isaiah chapter 14, our primary scripture for this morning. We've been looking through Christmas through the eyes of Isaiah these past Sundays of Advent. And today we're going to look at this fall of Lucifer through the eyes of a prophecy of Isaiah. Now, we know Isaiah had some firsthand experience with angels. In fact, in his call in Isaiah chapter 6, We see that when he sees the vision of God high and lifted up in the temple, and he says, I could not possibly be your prophet because I am a man of unclean lips. It is one of these angelic creatures called a seraph. And a seraph is a six-winged angel. And And the seraph flies down to the coals of the altar. It plucks one of the live coals. It touches it to Isaiah's lips and says, I have made your lips clean. And so now Isaiah could go forth as God's prophet. And so we see how close was Isaiah to this angelic creature that it actually touched a live coal to his lips. It was right there in his face. So Isaiah is a very good source to look at for some more details about angels. He saw one face to face. And this is what his prophecy says about Lucifer's fall. And for context, the beginning of this chapter again is giving a dual-layered prophecy of Israel's coming restoration following being taken into captivity. The first captivity, of course, was into Babylon. And this first layer was fulfilled when a remnant of Israel returned to Jerusalem from their captivity in Babylon. And this is why in verse 4 we read that following this return, their victorious taunt following the restoration is addressed against the king of Babylon. And this was fulfilled by the, the historical defeat of King Belshazzar and the fall of the Babylonian Empire. However, again, there is a second spiritual layer of this prophecy that, just like in Ezekiel, speaks about Lucifer, who is the only one who could have fully fit the description given in these verses. So listen to what Isaiah says of him in chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly and on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now what is clear from these boasts is that the cause of Lucifer's fall, the wickedness that was found within him, was pride. Pride in his own majestic beauty. Pride in his own power. Pride in his own self-importance. Pride in his own authority as the greatest and chief of all of the angelic beings that God had created. And just take note of what he says in his heart five 
times. He says, I will ascend. I will raise my throne. I will sit enthroned. I will ascend above. I will make myself like the Most High. Five times he says, I will. I, me. It was all about him. Five times he says, I will. When what Lucifer was created for was to always say to the Lord, not I will, but thy will. Thy will be done. But here we see Lucifer saying, I will, my will be done. And so because of this, Lucifer lost sight of his rightful place beneath God, beneath God's authority, beneath God's holiness. And so he thought he could ascend to be equal to. He says, I will be like the Most High. Perhaps even in his delusions of grandeur, he thought he could become greater and above God. But from that moment until this, the battle of I will versus thy will has raged ever since. And so what happened next? Well, Ezekiel tells us that Lucifer was driven from the mount of God, expelled from heaven, and thrown down to the earth in disgrace. Isaiah says the same thing, that he has fallen and now cast down to the earth. He could not be in God's presence. His holiness would not allow this corruption to stand. He's been cast down to the earth. But now there's a problem for us. He's been cast down to the earth. He's filled with pride and self. And now he is seeking to destroy and corrupt God's creation, which is us. He is now our adversary. And so long as Satan still roams this earth, we see from the very beginning he is man's enemy. He he deceives Eve Adam, they eat the fruit, they disobey God, he sows his same seeds of self and rebellion in the human race, and now we've been following after him ever since. And for this reason, Peter describes him as a roaring lion, going about looking for those he may devour. And so he's a fearsome adversary of all mankind. But thankfully, thankfully, Isaiah also foresaw and tells of Lucifer's coming end. Back in Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 15 to 17, he gives a lengthy description of what Satan's end will be. And this is part of it, verse 15. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives Go home. And so here we see the day is coming where Satan will be utterly humiliated and brought so low that he will in fact be taunted and made a spectacle of. And the people who he once held captive will look at him and their mouths will just hang open in astonishment and sheer wonder. Could this be the same tyrant who once ruled us with an iron fist? And verse 19 continues describing. Lucifer's end. You are cast out of your tomb. Like a rejected branch, you are covered with the slain. With those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. Like a corpse trampled underfoot. You should hear echoes in that statement. Echoes of Genesis 3.15. 
where the first, the first gospel was preached to Adam and Eve in the garden, that to the serpent he said of this coming deliverer, you will bruise his heel, but he will strike your head. And so this idea of Satan's head being crushed under the Lord's foot, and here Isaiah echoes this, like a corpse trampled underfoot. And not only that, you should hear echoes now from the New Testament, where Paul says in Romans 16 verse 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Again, he is trampled underfoot, not only first by the Lord, but also by the Lord's people, his children. He will be trampled like nothing underneath our feet. What an incredible promise. Satan's end is guaranteed, and despite his most fierce resistance, mankind's salvation would be achieved. And most incredible of all, God would accomplish all of this, not by sending down the archangel Michael at the head of his angelic army to take back the earth by force. Instead, he achieved all of this and ensured Satan's end by sending a seemingly helpless baby, his own son. And if you turn with me now to Revelation chapter 12, the Apostle John was given a vision into the spiritual realm, and this is another multi-layered prophecy which spans from the beginning of time to the end. And in John's vision, we catch a glimpse of both Satan's celestial war against God's loyal angels, his war against God's Son, and his war against God's children that will only increase until the end of the age and Christ Jesus' triumphant return. Now, in the first part of the vision in Revelation chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3, John sees in the heavenlies a sign of a pregnant woman who represents Israel. And she is about to give birth to a son who is evidently representing Jesus. But then he sees another sign, a red dragon appears, who of course represents Satan. And this red dragon attempts to stop God's plan for mankind's salvation and deliverance through this son. In the middle of verses 4 to 5 says this, The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Then the second part of the vision, beginning in verse 7, says, And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now as we read these, we got to remember these are prophetic images, and yet... There is a very real description of something happening in the heavenly spiritual realms behind all of this. Battles between angelic forces, spiritual entities waging war in the heavenlies. And we can only use our imagination, but it only goes so far to envision what those very real events would have looked like and indeed are still happening around us today. As the angelic forces of God are still at war with the demonic forces of Satan. If we could only be given a glimpse into them for even a moment, I think it would utterly blow our minds what is happening in the spiritual realm all around us. And yet with this aim in mind, I invite you now to try to imagine with me how those spiritual events may have transpired in the heavenly realms. As we consider now through the eyes of the angel Gabriel 
what these events may have looked like. It was on the hillside outside of Bethlehem that Gabriel swooped down into position, knowing instinctively that all of the angelic hosts of heaven had followed him closely in perfect formation. This celestial host was equally well-versed in worship as they were in warfare. In fact, it's what they were created for, was to worship their king. And here they had been practicing one special song for thousands of years, just for this special moment. And they had been ready and eager to sing it. And here it came. And in that moment, Gabriel hoped that he wouldn't give these poor shepherds a heart attack. And so as he swooped down into position, he did not reveal himself. Not yet. Not until just the right moment. And then it came. And in a flash of brilliant light, he reveals himself to the shepherds. And in their astonishment, he declared, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And then in perfect harmony, the sound of which no earthly choir ensemble could ever duplicate, the angelic host revealed themselves and declared to the shepherds, to the sheep, and indeed to all of creation, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. It was some time later that basking in the afterglow of this successful mission, Gabriel was hovering high above the earth, looking down on Bethlehem, keeping watch over his king, now a baby, asleep in such humble accommodations. He marveled at his master's plan, how he and his fellow angels had longed to look into this salvation that the prophets had foretold for hundreds and thousands of years, but it was kept a mystery until this very moment. How could he have thought of such a thing? Gabriel remembered the satisfaction on Mary's face when her labor was done, and then the pure joy as she held her son for the first time. It was such a strange thing to see, Mary cradling his king, and the prince of glory, now helpless in her arms. He then recalled with a smile the beautiful star and the simple faith of those shepherds who went and worshipped the king that night. It was so beautiful. Everything had gone according to plan. The mission was successful. The angelic choir had never sounded better. The sun was given. The shepherds went to worship. And in that moment, Gabriel felt the father's approval and satisfaction of his job well done. All seemed right with the world. But then the alarm was sounded, and Gabriel's sword was instantly in his hand. The enemy approached, and Gabriel watched in disbelief as Satan swooped towards him, alone and unarmed. Always so brazen, so arrogant, Satan gave him his most dazzling smile. Put that thing away, old friend, Satan spoke cheerfully. I didn't come to fight, but to talk. Gabriel's reply was firm and filled with resolve. I don't have anything to talk with you about. From long and bitter experience, Gabriel knew better than to let his guard down around the deceiver. 
For not only had Lucifer rebelled against God himself, but his smooth talk had corrupted and seduced nearly a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion. They had once been Gabriel's friends, but were now his mortal enemies. And yet he couldn't help but look, look for any sign, any hint of Lucifer's former glorious and pure self. But look as he might, he couldn't find it. And he wondered to himself, how could heaven's morning star have now fallen so low? Now, I know you don't question God's decisions, Lucifer butted in, but that was a really bad move. Sending his only begotten son to earth, it was the worst thing God could have done. You know, Gabriel said, I thought that even you would have been impressed. What greater gift could God possibly give than his son? It was a wasted gesture on God's part, Lucifer replied sharply. For one thing, people are just way too busy to notice Jesus or hear his message. Even if they do hear, do you think they'll believe? What do you think people care the most about anyways? Just look at the way they live. Do they really care about spiritual gifts like love or faith or peace or long-term blessings like salvation and eternal life? They can hardly think past today, their own needs. Look at them, running around in a vain frenzy, like ants on an anthill, overscheduled, unfulfilled, clutching and grasping and cramming every waking moment with something terribly important to do. The two former co-workers sat for a few minutes in pensive silence as the weight of Lucifer's harsh words sank in. Suddenly a vision came into view from the earth below. It was a family at home at the dinner hour. And a father had just come home from work and a mother was trying to rush to get dinner on the table because Junior had to leave in ten minutes for his Torah recital. The older sister was just home from her harp lesson but couldn't come to the table because she had been ready to finish more beaded necklaces for tomorrow's market. Junior gulped down his food without waiting for the others. He bolted out the door without a goodbye. While, meanwhile, the father sat down looking at a scroll of the latest commodities. His mother sat down with a deep sigh, clearly lonely and utterly exhausted. Do you see what I mean? asked Lucifer. If people can't even appreciate the gift of family life, which is right in front of their eyes, how will they appreciate the gift of eternal life, which they have to see through the eyes of faith? Gabriel didn't answer, so Lucifer continued. Even if people do somehow reorder their lives and pay more attention to what's truly important, they won't believe the truth about Jesus anyway. Do you think the world will believe that an illegitimate child, born of a teenage girl in a dusty little town like Bethlehem, is really the Son of God? This is a world where appearances are everything, where all that matters are those things which can be consumed, acquired, or exploited for our pleasure in the here and now. And suddenly Gabriel perked up. That's where you're wrong. With all of the prophecies, the star overhead, our announcement to the shepherds, word's going to get out there. Word's going to get around. I'm sure it's going to be a city square herald's first line tomorrow morning. In fact, today's heralds are coming out any minute now. Let's see what they're saying. 
And so the clouds parted once more, and the two angels listened to the heralds shout out the latest news in the town squares. In Rome, the first-line news was about a spectacular chariot accident at the latest Hippodrome race. Next was a description of a debutante party for the rich and famous in Pompeii and who was wearing what. This was followed by an editorial denouncing innkeepers who were raising their lodging prices, taking advantage of all of the people required to travel the far distances to the villages of their birth in order to pay Caesar's tax. Price gouging. This was followed by the commodity prices, the latest odds on the Colosseum games, fashion tips, and even the weather report. Everything except a story about the birth of God's Son. Satisfied by Gabriel's silence that his point had been made, Lucifer went on to his third and final argument. Besides the fact that people are too busy to notice Jesus and won't believe him anyway, the plain truth is that this world is far too dangerous for Jesus to be sent in as a mere human, in that pathetically weak skin, and a baby at that. Don't you know how easily humans die? Where are his bodyguards? Where are his weapons? How can you guarantee his safety? Do you know what happens to people who try to do good in this world, or who offend the powers that be, the powers that I control? They get assassinated. The authorities put them away. Yes, you know it, and I know it. This world is far too dangerous a place for God's son. And after an ominous pause, Lucifer growled, and I'm going to make sure that it is. Suddenly, another earthly vision came into view. This time, a family celebrating the impending birth of a child. People are having a wonderful time, dancing and singing, catching up with aunts, uncles, and cousins they hadn't seen in years. Do you see that, said Gabriel? There is still some love and joy to be found in this world. It isn't all just violence and danger and betrayal and death. The two angels then listened as the expectant father stopped the dancing to make a toast. I thank God for this child who is to come. And if it is a girl, my wife will name her. And if it is a boy, I will name him... Judas Iscariot. Lucifer smiled wickedly at the name of Judas. That clinches it, he cried. If things don't work out with old Herod, I've got big plans for Judas. God has made a colossal mistake sending his son into my arena. He may have kicked me out of heaven, but earth is mine. And these people are my puppets. You just watch, Gabriel. I won't even have to get my own hands dirty. I'll just pull the right string here, whisper in the right ear there, and I'll get those pathetic humans to do it themselves. Just watch. They'll kill their own savior with their own filthy hands. By now, even Gabriel's beginning to wonder if Lucifer wasn't right. Could God have possibly made a mistake sending Jesus to this unbelieving and dark world too busy and too dangerous to receive him? And at that moment, the clouds parted once again. Another vision appeared, and there was a cross. And Gabriel just gasped as he saw it, for on that cross hung his Lord, his Master, bloodied and dying. This made Lucifer gloat all the more. See what they will do to him? Your precious king's mission is doomed from the start. Can't you see that, Gabriel? But then the vision shifted. 
and they saw a tomb with two angels standing outside. And Gabriel looked closer and realized that it was himself and Michael. They were rolling away a stone, and suddenly the ground shook, and a light so bright, so pure and brilliant, that it could only be the glory of God himself shot forth. And Lucifer turned away, and he plugged his ears as a thunderous word shot forth. It is finished. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Did you hear that? shouted Gabriel. I will grant you everything you have just said about this world. But that is exactly why God has done this. Yes, you managed to get Adam and Eve and all of their children to share in your misery of separation from God. Yes, people are afraid of the dark, afraid of the sin within them, afraid of the dark death beyond the grave. But don't you see? The heart of what ails people is their separation from their father. They could never go to God's throne and seek forgiveness, and so they die in their sins. But now God has removed all the distance. He has come close to his children, and he will take your power by defeating sin and death. The promise is coming true. He will crush your head, Lucifer. And at those last thunderous words, Lucifer turned away, covering his ears and shouting, No, I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. And with that, he sped away in the direction of King Herod's palace. Yes, it's all starting to make sense now, Gabriel thought to himself, now peaceful once more. He looked back towards the baby in the manger. Emmanuel, God with us. He has put skin on to draw near to his people, who would not and could not draw near to him. He has brought light to people who could not see past their own darkness. He will live the perfect life that they cannot live and die the perfect death that will set them free from its power forever. Yes, the victory was assured. As always, Lucifer was wrong. His greatest deception was of himself. His end was coming. The king was born. And he knew that once God set his plan into motion, nothing and no one, not even Satan himself, could stop it. God's salvation for the earth had come. And with that thought, Gabriel burst forth into song once more. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Heavenly Father, we magnify your name. We glorify you for your incredible plan of salvation. And we thank you for your long-suffering, your mercy, that you did not cast us away the moment we rebelled against you, but that instead you made a way for us to come back. And that even though in our day-to-day lives we rarely think of it and we certainly can't see it, there is a spiritual war happening all around us. And you have sent your angels to fight on our side, on our behalf, as servants, following your direction, your authority. And yet, Lord, they are there for our good. And we know that the enemy goes about like a roaring lion, but we thank you that his teeth have been removed. Death has been defeated. Sin has been forgiven through Jesus, through your cross, and through your resurrection. And so I pray, Lord, that we would live in this victory, that it is assured, and that our our enemy, though he seems fierce in the battle, we know his end is assured, and we have victory through the cross of Christ. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can walk from this place in full assurance of that victory through faith today. We pray that it would make all the difference. In your name, amen.